Full disclosure, I'm actually going to be preaching in chapel tomorrow at the university. So for William and everybody else here from Hotchkiss Upper Back, I apologize for the redundancy because I'm going to preach this morning a message that's similar to the message that I'm going to preach tomorrow morning in chapel. And it's around a big theme, and the theme could be phrased in the form of a question, and that question is, what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be successful? And when we think about that question, certainly from the world's standpoint, there would probably be lots of answers to that. We might even break it down into specific categories, right? What does it mean to be successful in business or in athletics or in uh, our finances or in some other category, maybe at work or in the family? What does it mean to succeed? What does it mean to be a success? And I think if you were to ask just your average person on the street, you know, what, give us some examples of really successful people. They would point to some of the most well-known names in the business world, right? Names like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. Or they would point to the most well-known names in athletics, LeBron James or Tom Brady. Or they would point to well-known names in the entertainment world, right? The, the, the famous people. And since I mentioned Tom Brady, just stay with the theme of Tom. Tom Cruz, Tom Hanks, Tom Holland. There's a lot of famous Toms. So, as I was preparing this, I was like, huh, maybe I should change my name to Tom. <laughs> but But what does it mean to be successful, or even in the political world, right? And you think of someone like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom, and no matter what you think about their policies, that's not the point. When people think of who has been successful in a particular realm, those are names that come to mind. From a world's perspective, from a worldly perspective, those are examples of great success, the rich and the famous. Our world defines success, I think, in terms usually of fortune and fame, or maybe at a more pragmatic level, you might think of success in terms of finances and family and work and and all of those kinds of things. But the question that I want us to consider this morning is, what does it mean to be successful as followers of Jesus from a biblical perspective? How does the Bible define success? Not just in those specific categories, but also big picture, when we look at our lives, how can we assess whether or not the life that we are living is truly successful in the way that really matters and really counts? So that's what I want us to consider this morning. What does it mean to be successful? As I was thinking of some maybe counterintuitive examples, there were a few examples from church history that came to my mind. It was actually 300 years ago this year, in 1721, December of 1721, that an 18-year-old Jonathan Edwards began writing down his famous resolutions. And we're familiar with the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, And in fact, Edwards himself later admitted that he 
struggled in trying to keep those resolutions. So I don't want to mention those as if that is the ultimate way of uh, reaching some sort of holiness in this life. But Jonathan's Ed- Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, his 70 resolutions, began with the resolution that he was going to live insofar as he was able every moment of every day for the glory of God. And that's a noble resolution. He also later in his resolution said that he was resolved to live in such a way that when he came to his death, the end of his life, and he looked back, he wanted to live in such a way that he would have lived every moment the way that he would want to have lived it when he came to die. And I think that's also a helpful perspective for us as we reflect on what does it mean to be successful. When you come to the end of your life and look back, is the way that your life is currently going, is the trajectory of your life now, or the things that you're doing now, things that you'll look back on and say, yes, that was a successful venture, or wow, I was really distracted, or I was really going in the wrong direction. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards because Jonathan Edwards is considered one of the greatest minds that America has ever produced. In fact, some have called him the greatest theologian that ever came from North America. So here you have a brilliant mind, a brilliant scholar, and what does Jonathan Edwards do with the rest of his life? Well, he spends it as a pastor pastoring a church in Northampton, Massachusetts, a church from which he actually got fired eventually because he was taking a biblical stand on some key issues and his congregation voted him out. But the greatest mind that America or the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, again, that's a title that's been given to Edwards by some, he spends his life as a pastor. It was a century later that a 17-year-old in the mid-1800s, who actually grew up in another part of Massachusetts, Northfield, Massachusetts, moved to Boston and found work as a salesman. And he was actually a very successful salesman. So successful, in fact, that when he relocated to Chicago, this salesman had a goal of raising $100,000, of of earning $100,000. Now, to us, that doesn't sound like very much, but I went ahead and put it in Google and asked, how much would $100,000 from 1855 be worth today? It's over $3 million. Um, I guess inflation's real. So um, (laughs) this guy had a goal of raising what the equivalent would be of over $3 million dollars very successful salesman, and then God got a hold of his heart, and he left business behind to become an evangelist, one of the most well-known evangelists of the 19th century. His name was D.L. Moody. And a younger contemporary of D.L. Moody, also in the mid to late 1800s, was actually one of the most celebrated athletes of his day. He was... So well-known, he was on a a full scholarship to Cambridge and uh, had the opportunity, actually, to 
uh, go into professional sports. He would have been one of the most famous and celebrated professional athletes likely of his lifetime. And instead, he decided to walk away from athletics and to go and serve as a missionary, first in China and then in India and eventually in Africa. And he died in Africa as a missionary. And his name was Charles Studd, C.T. Studd. And he's the one that wrote that famous poem, poem, Only One Life, Twill Soon Be Passed, Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. And I use those three examples, Jonathan Edwards, because he was a great intellect, Charles Spurgeon, because he was, uh, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon was also awesome, but for different reasons, D.L. Moody, because he was a great salesman, and then finally C.T. Studd, because he was an incredible athlete. And yet, they didn't find their success in academic achievements or in business entrepreneurship or in the athletic field. They found their success in doing something that from a worldly perspective is counterintuitive and almost seems like folly. Why would you give up academic pursuits for being a pastor? Why would you give up being a a millionaire for being an evangelist? Why would you give up being one of the most famous athletes of your day to go be an unknown laborer on the mission field? Well, the answer to that is because they had a very different definition of what it means to be successful. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, by using those examples, that the only way you can be successful is if you leave your career and go and serve in full-time ministry. That's not the point. I use those examples because they are clear evidences, clear models of Christians who rightly understood that the definition of success is not found in academic achievement or in business or in athletics. It's found in something else, something that doesn't just have temporal value, but has eternal value. And the lessons we can learn from their perspective are lessons that we can apply to our lives, whether we are in full-time ministry or whether we're in a full-time career or whether we're a stay-at-home mom or whether we're a full-time student. Wherever you are in life, the principles and perspective that the Bible gives us about what it really means to be successful are things that have direct import for how you live and how you think about your life. Maybe the most clear example of this, at least as I was thinking about it, is the example of the Apostle Paul. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at a section of one of the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But the Apostle Paul, if we were to look at Philippians 3, which you don't need to turn there, The Apostle Paul had a very impressive resume. From a human perspective, Paul seemed to be on the path to great success. In fact, in Philippians, he talks about the fact that he was 
a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one of the most respected religious minds of his day, a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. He kind of goes through this spiritual checklist and he presents his resume. And if you were to look at that resume, especially from the perspective of first century Judaism, you would say, wow, this guy is most likely to succeed, right? Remember that category in your high school yearbook? The Apostle Paul was most likely to succeed from a worldly standpoint. He had everything going for him. And yet, what does he say later in Philippians chapter 3? I counted it all but rubbish, right? It was all like dung. It was, it was worthless when I came to understand that in God's eyes, that stuff is just like filthy rags. It doesn't do me any good. What I needed was the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. What I needed was the Lord Jesus. And without him, no matter how much success I seem to have on a human level, my life will actually be a total failure. The book of 2 Corinthians, where we're going to spend some time this morning, was written by Paul on his third missionary journey. He wrote it probably around the year 55 or 56, and he wrote it while he was in Ephesus. In fact, if you were to look at Acts chapter 19, you would find that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and while he was there, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. He would actually follow it up with a visit to Corinth, and while he was in Corinth, about six months after, after writing this letter, he wrote the book of Romans. So that's kind of how it fits in the chronology of your New Testament. Uh, the interesting thing about that is Paul started his missionary career probably around the year 46 or 47 on the first missionary journey. Uh, that's recorded for us in Acts 13 and 14. And Paul ended his missionary career around the year 66 or 67 when he was executed by Emperor Nero and he went home to heaven. So Paul's missionary career was about 20 years from the first missionary journey till just after he wrote 2 Timothy in the mid to late 60s. That means that this letter, 2 Corinthians, was written right about the midpoint of Paul's missionary career. I think that's interesting, right? If Paul's missionary career was a football game, this is halftime, okay? So we're in halftime here in the book of 2 Corinthians. Why I find that interesting is because in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul outlines all of these hardships that he's endured for the gospel, He talks about the fact that he was imprisoned multiple times, arrested multiple times, that he often went hungry, that he sometimes uh, didn't even have a place to, to stay. He was without food and shelter and just the basic necessities of life. He suffered for the sake of the gospel. He even talks about a shipwreck in 2 Corinthians 11. That's only the first half of Paul's missionary life. The shipwreck that's recorded in Acts 27 is not the shipwreck of 2 Corinthians 11. Paul was in multiple shipwrecks. Just fascinating to consider all that he endured for the sake of the gospel. But in 2 Corinthians 11, he says that the greatest burden of all on his heart was his care and concern for the churches. That's relevant to this letter because of all of the churches that Paul planted, the one that gave him the most grief 
was the church in Corinth. And in fact, it was this letter, which is arguably outside of 2 Timothy, the last letter Paul wrote, this letter is arguably the most personal, the most emotional, because Paul is responding to false teachers in Corinth who were seeking to undermine his ministry. A church that he had planted, people with whom he had personally shared the gospel, people who had come to Christ under his ministry were now backstabbing him, undermining him, listening to these false teachers. And Paul finds himself having to write a letter to defend his motives, defend his ministry. And he just pours out his heart to these dear people whom he loves but by whom he really, in many cases, has been betrayed. And it's in that context, then, that Paul gives us what I'm going to argue are the core ingredients for how Paul defined success. Because from a human level, at this point in Paul's ministry, it doesn't really look like he's been very successful, (laughs) He has endured all sorts of ill treatment, affliction, malediction. He's been undermined, betrayed. He's been imprisoned. He's gone hungry. Like this doesn't really seem like a very successful ministry plan, Paul. And even the church that you planted there in Corinth is, there's false teachers who are leading an uprising against you. You're having to defend your ministry. Kind of seems like your efforts have, have failed. And yet what we find is that Paul responds to all of that by saying that he is of good courage, that he does not lose heart. And it's because he has defined and understands success in a completely counterintuitive way. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, because I think the principles that undergirded Paul's understanding of success are helpful for us as we think about what does it mean to be successful in the Christian life. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look specifically at verses 6 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And, and what we're going to find here are three core ingredients for defining true success. The first of those three ingredients is what I'm going to simply call the right mindset, the right mindset. And it's there in verses six through eight, the right mindset. And the right mindset, as Paul will make clear here, is a heavenly mindset. In verses, well, in in chapter four, he's been talking about the fact that he's hard pressed, but uh, he's not beat down and he actually talks about the fact that he's been enduring all of these difficulties. That chapter ends with him saying that he knows that the momentary light affliction that he has endured is producing an eternal weight of glory. And that's a well-known verse, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Now, of course, there's no chapter break in the original. Those are put in later. So it goes straight from that verse into chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where Paul actually talks about the fact that he recognizes that this life is temporal and that his physical body is a temporal residence. Uh, He uses the metaphor in verses 1 to 5 of a tent. 
And that'll become important even as we understand what he's saying here in verses 6 through 8. But I find it fascinating, right? Because Paul was a tent maker. So if anybody understood how quickly tents can wear out and how much they, how often they need to be repaired, it was Paul. And he uses that metaphor to say, hey, my life, my physical body, I mean, I'm getting beat up out here, both physically and emotionally. Uh, I recognize that this is all temporal. Okay, Paul. That doesn't sound, from again, from the world's perspective, like a recipe for success. You're getting beat up. You're getting mocked. You're getting undermined. You're probably going to die early. Like, how is this successful? But Paul's response to that is, again, this is successful if you think about it in the right way. And we see that in verses 6 to 8, a right mindset. Therefore, being always of good courage... And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So Paul's just talked about the fact in verses 1 to 5 that this earthly body that we all have is a body that's not going to last that the life that we live now is temporal, and we look forward to the life to come. And in this specific context, we look forward to the glorified body that we will one day receive. Having that eternal perspective, that heavenly mindset then, even in verse 5, the fact that God and the Holy Spirit are those who empower Paul to accomplish his mission— That gives Paul then the courage to keep going. Paul, how can you be of good courage when everything is against you? How can you be of good courage when your life from a worldly perspective is not defined by any of those things that we would normally say equate success? Paul is not rich. Paul does not have a place to stay. Paul gets beat up. Paul gets maligned. He's unpopular. You look at all of these different categories, and yet Paul says... I'm of good courage. Paul, how is that possible? Well, because Paul's viewing this life not as an end in itself, but for the temporal reality that it really is, and he's looking past this life to the life to come. And so in verse 6, we see that this heavenly mindset is marked by courage, the courage to keep going and to do what he knows is right. It's marked by anticipation, knowing that one day we will be with Christ. Verse 7, it's marked by faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing God. It's taking God at his word and acting accordingly. We live by faith, not by sight. It's verse 7. And then verse 8, we look forward to the day when we will be in his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know that that verse primarily gets preached at funerals, which is appropriate because when a brother or sister in Christ goes home to heaven, we take the hope of this verse and we encourage our own hearts with that reality. But I think what we see here in Paul and the point that I'm trying to make is that Paul is operating by an entirely different mindset. He operates on the basis of 
walking by faith rather than sight and viewing things against the reality that one day we will be with Christ. And so the things of this life ultimately only matter in light of the life to come. To quote again from C.T. Studd, right? Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I do think the metaphor of a tent is quite an appropriate metaphor. I remember growing up, my parents used to take our family camping every year. Uh, We would go up to Sequoia. There's a campground up there called Lodgepole. Some of you have probably been there. We used to go there uh, every year. And um, it was a great experience. Uh, But as a kid, especially as a young kid, you, you see sleeping in a tent as like, an adventure. It's awesome. The fact that you're laying on this very thin little foam mattress and that, um, you know, tents don't keep anything out. They don't really keep, they barely keep bugs out. They don't keep the cold out. They don't keep noise out. They certainly don't keep bears out. That I didn't really appreciate that until I became a grown up. We, uh, a number of years ago, our Cornerstone Bible study went on a camping trip also to Sequoia. It was a different campground, but when we got there, the ranger was like, beware of Bear 33. We're like, Bear 33? I, who's Bear 33? Beware of Bear 33. I don't know. I think they make it up just to scare all of the campers. But it, we never saw Bear 33, but I remember laying there at night, you know, hearing noises in the woods, and I'm like, I cannot believe that I am in a zipped-up sleeping bag inside of a tent, as if I think this is going to protect me from anything. Anyway, point is, tents are, tents are temporal, and even especially, well, both as a kid and especially as an adult, you get back home, and you're like, I am so glad to be home. That was fun, but I'm so glad to be home. And those of you who are moms, if you've ever gone camping with your family, you know that coming back home, that re-entry process, it requires a ton of cleanup, especially if you're camping at the beach, right? You bring all the sand back with you. But tents are temporary, and they're not a permanent residence. And to be back home, we see the, the established reality of our home compared to a tent, and we appreciate the permanence of the one and the temporalness of the other. Tents break. Tents are, are cheap. They're, they don't really protect you from anything. And Paul's using this as a metaphor of our own physical bodies and the contrast between what we experience now and what we will one day experience in our glorified state. I think Paul's actually making an even bigger point. I think he's using the tabernacle of the Old Testament and comparing it even to the temple. The tabernacle was temporary. The temple was something that was enduring. When we have that perspective where we recognize that this life is temporal, that it is not intended by God to be permanent, and that eternity is coming, and the permanence of eternity stands in contrast to the temporalness of this life, it changes the way we think about the things of this life. I mean, I think of Mark chapter 8, right? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or the parable that Jesus told of the rich man who wanted to build bigger barns. And it's like, God's saying, tonight your soul will be required of you. Who cares if you had a bigger barn? 
And I mentioned earlier names like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates, you know, the billionaires of our world. But when they die and stand before Christ, what does it really matter? So when we think about success in light of eternity from a heavenly perspective, it reorients our perspective so that rather than thinking about the here and now, these 70 to 80 years that we might have on this earth in this life, we suddenly start thinking about, oh, eternity, laying up treasure in heaven and living for Christ and doing those things that matter beyond just this life. So true success starts with a right mindset. Secondly, verse, uh, verse 9, true success is defined by a right motivation, a right motivation. And this is one of my favorite verses, really, in all of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Because here Paul goes beyond just saying, look, the reason I can see all of this hardship and trial and difficulty, and even though from a worldly standpoint, I would not be regarded as a success really by any measure, the reason I still take good courage is because when I think about the definition of success from a heavenly perspective, my investment in eternity does meet that standard. Then secondly, a right Motivation, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Christ. The at home or absent there refers to whether we are still here in this life. It's a reference to whether we're at home in the body or absent from the body, because to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. He's just said that. So whether we're still here in our physical bodies in this life, or whether we have died and gone to heaven, in either case, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. One thing I love about that verse is what it tells us is that when we get to heaven, our ambition will still be to be pleasing to Christ. I think that's, I think that's cool. For all of eternity, our ambition will be to be pleasing to Christ. But the import of that principle is not just how it relates to us then, it's how it relates to us now. The right mindset we mentioned was a heavenly mindset. The right motivation, I'm going to say, is a heartfelt motivation. It's a motivation that operates out of a love for Christ. Right? What is the greatest commandment? Mark 12, 30. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But that first commandment is to love the Lord. And when we think about success, success has to go deeper than what we do to why we do it. I think of Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus right? They were doing all the right things. They had all the right doctrine. They were standing up against false teaching. And the Lord, through the apostle John in Revelation 2, says, there's many good things that you are doing. The what of what you're doing is totally spot on. But I have this against you. You've lost your first love, right? The why has gotten off track, and I think 
especially for a group of believers whom I know are committed to wanting to serve the Lord actively and outwardly, this is a good reminder for us to always do a heart check on our motives. Okay, why am I going to church? Why am I participating in all of these cornerstone events on the four upcoming Saturdays? Why why am I doing all of these things? Why am I reading my Bible every day? Is it just to be sort of a checklist mark off, you know, cross it off the to-do list? We can do the right thing sometimes in the wrong way when we're not doing it out of a desire, a heartfelt motivation to be pleasing to Christ. So for Paul, true success was not just doing the right thing. It was doing the right thing in the right way with the right motivation. How did Paul define success? Well, first of all, it was from a heavenly mindset. Secondly, it was with a heartfelt motivation to be pleasing to Christ. Right? I even think of you know, Peter, when he had denied Christ and then he's restored at the end of the book of John, what is Jesus' question to Peter? Do you love me? And then if you love me, right, earlier in the Gospel of John, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there is an obedience, there is a faithfulness, but that faithfulness flows out of a love for Christ. And that's incredibly practical because that impacts every category of life. Why do I study hard for that test if I'm a student? Why do I want that promotion and work hard as an employee at my job? Why do I invest myself in the lives of my kids and seek to be a good parent? Why am I investing myself as a husband in my relationship with my spouse, right? As we think through all those different categories of life, the motivation question applies to all of them. Because you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and if you do the right things for the wrong reasons, from God's perspective, that's not success. Well, That brings us to a third core ingredient that I think Paul gives us here. And that is in verse 10. And that is this. If you're going to rightly define success, you not only need the right mindset and the right motivation, but thirdly, you need the right measurement. You need the right measurement. And in the same way that we saw in verses 6 through 8, that it's a heavenly mindset that defines success. And in verse 9, it's a heartfelt motivation that is that drives success, here in verse 10, I'm going to argue that it's the highest measure by which we ought to evaluate whether or not we are living successfully as those who are followers of Christ. And you see it there in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, just a couple of comments on this verse. First of all, we will one day stand before Christ. Romans must give an account to him. Now, some people look at this verse, verse 10, and they see that good or bad clause at the end, and they wonder, wait a second, is there going to be punishment at the Bema seat for the bad things that I have done? And the answer to that is no, because Christ has paid that penalty. He died on the cross 
so that there is no longer any punishment for those who are in him. But Paul has already made this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that when believers spend their time and effort and energy on worthless things, those worthless things are like building with wood, hay, and stubble, rather than building with gold and silver and precious stones. And those things in the end, the metaphor of 1 Corinthians 3 is those things will burn up. And so I think the best way to understand this is that Paul is saying, you know, when we stand before Christ, we give an account both for the things that we did in faithfulness to him and then also those worthless things. It's not a punishment issue, but it is an issue of stewardship. This is a helpful a helpful reminder for all of us as believers that as sure as I am standing before you this morning, you will one day stand before Jesus and you will give an account for your life. So, you know, Jonathan Edwards, he said, I want to live in such a way as I will wish I had lived when I come to die. And that's, that's, a, that's a standard. I want to live so that when I get to the end of my life and look back, I go, yeah, I'm, you know, by God's grace, I believe that I stewarded my life well. But at the end of the day, even your own opinion isn't what ultimately matters. What matters is God's opinion, specifically the opinion of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, before whom you will give an account. Well, what a great thing to consider as we go through life and and ask ourselves, okay, if my ambition is to be pleasing to Christ, and if I know that one day I will give an account to Christ for how I have lived, doesn't that impact the choices I make with regard to my finances and my work and my family and my free time? Whatever those categories of life are, as you navigate the years and the seasons, are the patterns of your life the kind of patterns where you say, I look forward to standing before Christ? Or are those the kinds of things where you say, yeah, this is probably more wood, hay, and stubble? Matthew chapter 25, this is a familiar parable. The Lord Jesus told the story of a master who went on a journey and he left his servants behind to manage his affairs. And when he got back, two of the servants had been faithful. One of the servants proved himself to be unworthy. But you remember what the master says to the servants who were faithful, and that's what I want to focus on, is he says to them, well done, right? Well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And for every one of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as followers of him, as his servants, it is our ultimate desire to hear him say to us, well done, well done. In light of the fact that that is the standard, that is the measurement, how are you living now knowing that one day you will stand before him. Success 
when you success itself is a bit of a subjective term, right? When we talk about what does it mean to be successful, I think the question that immediately arises is, well, against what standard? Against what standard are we evaluating our success? On the athletic field, it's measured usually in wins and losses. In the classroom, it's often measured by report cards and GPAs. In the workplace, it's measured by bonuses and promotions. But in the big scheme of things, when it comes down to what really matters, how do we measure success? Well, God's word tells us that God is the one who measures success. The reality is every human being will appear before God to give an account. For the believer, that Bema seat judgment is very different than the great white throne judgment that unbelievers face. But it still should be a sobering reminder for us that one day we will give an account to Christ for how we live and how we utilize the opportunities that he has given us for his glory and his kingdom. I'd like to close our time this morning by actually having you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 was the book of 2 Corinthians written right at the midpoint of Paul's missionary career. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the last chapter of the last letter that the Apostle Paul would ever write. This is at the very end of his life. He probably only has months before he will be taken from a Roman dungeon and executed. And I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul knows he's going to die. He's in a Roman dungeon. But look at verse 9. Make every effort to come to me. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to the last couple of months of Paul's life, he's been a faithful pastor, church planter, missionary. Um, obviously, in the scope of church history, one of the greatest who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. And yet, when it comes to the end of his life, he finds himself in a Roman dungeon. His friends have gone. Some of them, like Demas, have deserted him. He has enemies who are seeking his demise, like Alexander the coppersmith. He doesn't even have his coat. And worse, he doesn't even have his books. Okay, maybe that's not worse, but I'm at the seminary, so that's worse. (laughs) Keep my coat, bring me my books. From the world's perspective, Paul's missionary career ends in abject failure. He's in prison without friends, unpopular, prosecuted, persecuted, doesn't have a coat, doesn't have his books, impoverished. This is the end of Paul's illustrious career. And you look at that from, again, the world's perspective, and you say, that's failure to end unliked, unpopular, impoverished, and about to be executed as an enemy of the state. I don't think anyone (laughs) 
thinks, oh, that's how I want my life to end. That, that's what I'm hoping for. But when we think about how Paul defines success, the right mindset, the right motivation, the right measure, we see that what looks like failure from the world's perspective is actually true success. In fact, look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And then even if you go back to verses 6 through 8, Paul says, I ran the race. I fought the fight. I did not abandon the faith. I kept the faith. And so there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness that awaits all those who love the Lord and long for his appearing. Paul's motivation or Paul's mindset was that things that are eternal, which last forever, are far more important than the temporal, including temporal suffering. Paul's motivation was that I'm going to be pleasing to Christ even if I'm not pleasing to anybody else. And the measure of his success was that one day I will be accountable to my Lord. I will stand before him to give an account. And on that day, Paul knew he would be welcomed home with the words, well done. When we think about those ingredients and we apply them to our lives, okay, when I go to work tomorrow or when I'm home with my kids or when I'm thinking about some sort of business opportunity or some sort of use of my free time, whatever the category may be, I think we can ask ourselves the questions that relate to these three points. Is this something that, when I think of it from a heavenly mindset, has eternal value? Secondly, is this something that I can do and be pleasing to Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. And then number three, when I stand before Christ to give an account to him, for how I use the resources, the time, the energy, the, uh, even the financial resources and the talents and giftings that he's given each one of us, when I stand before him to give an account, does this fit in the category of that which lasts forever? And, and thinking about our decisions through that grid will enable us by God's grace, even like the Apostle Paul, to be successful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we've looked to your word, 2 Corinthians 5, to mine out three principles for being successful in the truest sense. We know that this world, this life does not last forever, that our bodies will not last forever. But we look forward to the day when they will be changed into glorified bodies that will last forever. And when we think about the reality of eternity and contrast that with the temporal nature of this life, it changes what's really important. 
Father, may we approach those things that are really important with the right motivation, which is to please Christ. And with the right measure of what it means to be successful, which is to anticipate the day when we will stand before you. We do look forward to that day when we will see your son face to face. And by his grace, and really only because of what he has done on our behalf, do we anticipate hearing him say to us, well done. May that be our great joy, our great anticipation, and even now a reason for us to worship. And we pray this all in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.